Here we are, April the 13th, 2014, lecture discussion number 151 on the book of Romans. And last Sunday, uh, for those of you who were uh, otherwise occupied and therefore absent, uh, we began the journey into Romans chapter 9. So that's kind of where we're at today. We're actually in Romans during the Romans study. Who can imagine that? But that's where we are. And it seemed like the right thing to do at the time, since Romans chapter 9 has been looming on the horizons for a while now. And I got a bunch of letters. If you were here last week, I read parts of those letters uh, from three gentlemen, uh, Glenn and um, Shannon from Texas and Rand from Illinois, who uh, wanted to have um, uh, some understanding of the issues of Romans 9. And I had brought it up a few weeks ago, and so my plan was to get to it. And when I did do it, or when I do do, do, do when I do Romans, what I, what I try to accomplish is go both directions at the same time. So Romans 9, when I, when I get to Romans 9, I go back to 8, and I go up to 10 and 11. Sometimes I'll even go back to 7. But I'm in Romans 9 while I'm going back both directions. And as you know... Um, Romans is this amazing book, and Romans 9 will be just as amazing. You can't neglect Romans 9, but the rest of Romans, as you know, is, is this, it's a great, astonishing book in the Bible because it has all of these themes in it that are so important, and we've gone over a lot of them. The just shall live by faith. If nothing, you get nothing out of Romans, that's what you should get. But he also puts in Romans, none are righteous, no, not one. There is no partiality with God. Those three are so powerful as you begin to go through your life studying what they always mean or what they, what they mean uh, in totality. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, understood by the things that are made, so all are without excuse. Again, uh, that's the issue that we're in with regard to the uh, the evolution-creation debate. Here's another word. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. You cannot be saved by the law. You cannot be saved by what you do. You are saved by what you believe. Here's another. God gave them over to a debased mind. Do you despise the richness of his goodness? Almost every important doctrinal thought that you can imagine you're going to find is a theme of the book of Romans. All have sinned, but are justified freely by his grace. He that believes God is juxtaposed, or is versus, if you will, is made the opposite of him that works. <coughs> Believe God or him that works. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Adam, who is a type of Christ. Adam is. That's all you have to do. Paul writes, Adam is. Not Adam was. Adam is a type of Christ. Those fantastic verses and truths uh, lead us to so many places everywhere uh, from the mind and the brain, uh, which is the physical properties and the mental properties. How do I have mental properties and physical properties? How do they interconnect? How are they interdependent? How do they cooperate with one another when they're two different substances? The mind is not a physical substance, yet the mind controls a physical substance, your body. What happens when you die? 
What happens to your mental properties? That is the subjects, that's the subject matter of the book of Romans. We have the mortogenic factor or the death generator. Why do we die? Why is it that our bodies are decaying? Why do we go into death? Why do we have physical death? How is it that it's possible to kill us? Is that how God designed it? How, where did it come from? Why is it here? And as you know, that takes us into the biological understanding of the continuity of germplasm and germ cells and somatic cells, which is the virgin birth. The ubiquity of law. We have law everywhere, a universal law. Where did it come from? What is its origin? Where are these laws? How, how did they come into existence? And, and as you know, that is the, that is the astrophysics and the quantum mechanics subjects that we've been doing. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I had a long talk with a gentleman from Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the issues that we brought up uh, that we both agree on, but one of the things we discussed was that I have a literal position on that, that the seed of the woman who is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and the seed of the serpent will have this conflict, and it's a literal, actual event that literally actually happened. And so we have to ask, when did it happen, where did it happen, and who did it? That's how you can define or you can identify the seed of the serpent. Somewhere God is bruised in the Bible. And somewhere the Antichrist has a fatal wound. Where? How do you bruise God? What does it mean to bruise God? How do you hurt God? Can you hurt him physically? No. So where was Jesus Christ hurt by the Antichrist? And when you find that spot, who is the Antichrist? And that's just to name a, name a few. Now we're going to go and add Romans 9 to all of that. All that amazing... Um, uh, I just I can't even begin to describe what is in the book of Romans. You, if you, sometimes I have said many times that you just just take Romans and sit down and devote some time to the themes of the book of Romans and these important questions in your life that you think are so difficult are all there. So you only really need to fire yourself through one book. Now it's going to launch you everywhere. You're going to find out today, but. Um, that's a good place to start, especially uh, if you're struggling in your life, because he gives you a great deal of comfort and information there. So we're going to add Romans 9 today, and as always the case, it's of paramount importance to maintain a, a cognizance, an attentiveness, if you will, on the context. It's the subject of Romans 9. Um, there's all these, all of these statements in Romans that confuse people. Many, many people have decided that when they read parts of Romans 9, that uh, it's telling us that God is arbitrary, that he's uh, hateful, that he's bad, wrong, unjust, evil, whichever word you want to have. You, you have that in the book of Romans and this issue of the potter and the clay in the book of Romans as well, in Romans 9. So, uh, last week I said that you have to be attentive to the context, the context of Romans 9 in order to navigate it. And I began by emphasizing that the subject of Romans 9 is the rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. I just said that as, uh, so that you would know that's my position. That's the subject, the Messiahship of Christ 
in the fact that Israel rejected that. So God came. Israel told God, we do not want the Shekinah glory, the flame over the Ark of the Covenant. We do not want that as our king. We don't want your Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies as the king over us. We don't want a spirit king. They said we wanted a human king. So Saul was ultimately given to them as a human king. And they've had human kings all along. Finally, God comes adding humanity and they reject him as their king. So there's this, uh, there's this element of they rejected God as spirit and as the Shekinah glory and his physical presence, if you will, in the Holy of Holies. And then when he comes as, as king in human, adding humanity, they reject him again. So we have the rejection of God by Israel. That is, I submit to you, the context. Uh, of Romans 9. And so we're going to revisit that again today. So if I'm right, and what? Of course I'm right. But if I'm right, and the context is the nation of Israel rejecting Christ, again let me emphasize, it's the nation of Israel, then the answer to all the questions, um, the answer to that that question and the other key questions will be obvious each and every time we come to what seems to be a difficult verse to understand. And so let me give you the question that you can ask all the time. Every time you read a difficult verse in the book of Romans, especially Romans 9, Romans 9 being where we are, always ask this. Is this verse about my individual salvation or somebody else's individual salvation? Or is this verse about the nation of Israel and its rejection of Christ's Messiahship? That solves almost all of it for you. And if it is about the nation of Israel, with re, what specifically is it about? How, what part of Israel's rejection of Christ are we talking about? Um, but we're going to stay true to the context today. And by the way, Paul states it as cleanly and as clearly as he can. He, he starts out by telling you what the context is in Romans 9. And, and But many uh, common errors are, uh, are, are there. Um, and they could be avoided. You can keep the, your boat off the rocks if you just re- realize what Paul is talking about and what he says he's talking about. It, I find it fascinating. If I came up to you and said, today I'm going to talk about uh, pouring a concrete foundation, and halfway through the lecture on how you form up footings and what uh, what kind of composition of your concrete you want and how much rebar per foot you need and uh, how you vibrate the concrete and how you uh, uh, where your uh, hold downs and your anchor bolts go and all this stuff I'm talking to you about foundations and halfway through I start out telling you it's about foundations everything I'm doing is about foundation halfway through the lecture you stop and say this has nothing to do (coughs) with swimming well of course it has nothing to do with swimming I'm talking about Foundations. Well, that's what happens in Romans 9. People are certain that he's not talking about the nation of Israel when he makes it as plain as he can. And we'll read it in a minute. Again, it should be repeated. Because I always ask, why do people do stuff like that? It makes no sense. But it actually does make sense. I should repeat this. There are those who benefit great, greatly by smashing boats under rocks on purpose. They want to confuse you. 
if you follow the analogy. In other words, they neglect the clear meaning because it's not profitable to them. They want to be wrong. Most of the time, they know they're wrong. A lot of times, they don't. And you have to learn uh, to identify the willfully dishonest from the unstudied or the confused. But neglecting the clear meaning is profitable to people. And their motive, of course, is control, and from control comes power, and from power comes what? Reward. That's the Nicolaitans of Revelation 2.6, and again, we'll be discussing those people as well because of a certain word that God uses when he talks about them. Whenever you come across a passage in Scripture that seems to be unclear, uh, or perhaps your first thoughts are this, that you think, oh, I've read this in the Bible now, and, and so the Bible is wrong here, or the Bible is contradicting itself. As you know, I get a lot of mail, and um, every now and then somebody will send me the same thing, and it is a long, long um, diatribe, essentially, of everything that is contradictory in the Bible. It's been around for a long time. They just get it somewhere, and they send it to whomever they don't like. So I get it often, not really often, maybe you know six, seven times a year, and about a month ago I got it again. And the person that sent it to me was positive that everything that he had found in the Bible at this particular website, he believed everything. The Bible was totally wrong on all it, and it just went on and on and on. It might have been 15 pages of stuff if I had printed it all out. And of course, none of it was what he thought. But he was certain somebody had gone through the Bible and, and picked out passages and phrases and, and verses and, of course, completely misunderstood them and decided that they, the Bible was wrong or the Bible was contradicting itself or they always think that God is unfair. And if you think God is unfair, then what have you said? You've said God is evil. If he's unfair, he's evil. That's a, a simple progression. And whenever you do that, you've got to stop yourself if you come across a passage in Scripture that you, you have a tendency to lean that way. It's unclear, and you have a thought, oh, wow, I read something here that identifies that God is evil, or the Bible is wrong or contradictory. Stop. What's the problem? The problem is not Scripture. The problem is you, me, us, we. I do not cast out the whole of Scripture. Do not accuse God of being evil or the Bible being wrong just because you have come across a verse or two that is, or ten or fifty that is mysterious or difficult for you to glean its true meaning. Spend a little time doing what? Studying. It's, it amazes me that people won't go find out. Do you think that you're the first person that thought, ooh, this verse is bad? No, you're not. Go find somebody else that thought that and find out what they concluded. Certainly never, never build a doctrine upon one verse. That's what's happening in Romans 9. They find one verse. They have no idea what it means. And they built a denomination out of it. It's unbelievable. Don't stand next to them, 
at the great white throne. Move over a couple of paces. should do the same with me, by the way. I'm not going to be your attorney. If you turn around and say, Steve, set up, where where'd he go? I will not be there. I'm on my own. You're on your own. Good luck to you. You don't need luck. You should have a good plan by now. But don't build a doctrine upon one verse just because you don't understand it. Do not throw aside all of Scripture because of one verse that you can't figure out. It's commonly said this. Use all of Scripture to explain one passage. Do not use one passage to try to explain all of Scripture. That's crazy town stuff. But that's Romans 9. This is where it happens probably in the worst place. I would. At Leviticus it does too. Uh, I get a lot of Leviticus questions. and It's the same kind of thing. If you try to understand the Old Testament without knowing that it is first and foremost a picture, a portrait of Jesus Christ, you will make a mistake every place in the, in the Old Testament. All you have to do is ask somebody who says, I found all these errors in the Old Testament. First thing you say is, can you explain to me the types of Christ that are in the Old Testament? He or she will say, no, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Then they cannot possibly get anything right about the Old Testament. They're wrong everywhere. You don't get the typology, the portraits of Christ in the Old Testament. You find a verse in the Old Testament where God, you think, oh, God is evil. God's doing a bad thing. He's saying bad things. You have no idea. And you have lost the typology. Okay. With all that in mind, let us read some more of Romans 9. Remember, we're going to have to explain Jacob, Esau, there's this triumphant, if you will. I have Jacob and Esau. I have the Pharaoh. And I have the potter, which is God, and the clay, which is us. Those three things are put together in Romans 9. We'll have to explain all three of them. And how they all fit together, there are three pieces. I have a piece that is Jacob and Esau, I have a piece that's Pharaoh, and I have a piece that is the potter and the clay. And when I figure out what all three of them mean individually, then what do I got to do next? I got to put them all together. Is it hard? Yes. Is it mysterious? Yes. Is it extremely valuable to you? Yes. If you can solve this mystery in Romans 9, you're on your way to solving mysteries all over the Bible. The same process will work. So what exactly is the meaning of each piece? And then how do all three pieces connect? And then what is said by the whole? So let's go ahead and read Romans 9. And while I'm reading it, it'd be nice if you... I think it's in your bulletin. It's nice for you to read it because when you read it, what's the chances that you make a mistake? Really high. Every time somebody reads this, if I had a group, I, what do we got here? I can't tell the internet how many we got because then they'll, they, we have a few people here. Let's just say that. Not as many as listen on the internet, but I, I can promise you in a group of a hundred people or so, 75 will get Romans 9 right or wrong. Sorry, I said it wrong. 75% will read Romans 9 and get it wrong every time. And it's really kind of like 
What is the square root of 9? And everybody in your math class gets it wrong. And you just go, whoa. Okay, we got to start here. 1 and 2 and 3 and 3 times 3, 9 square root 3. But they all get it wrong. Especially the first time they read it. So I know, by based on the math, how many will get this wrong. So let's go ahead and try. Romans 9, 1 through 14. This is Paul. Now, my Bible has a heading here. What does you just take a little poll? Does your Bible have a heading at Romans 9? What does it say? Okay, let's start. What does it say? Continue a sorrow of Paul. And yours? The Jews in the gospel. And yours? Israel's rejection of Christ. Anybody else have Israel's rejection of Christ? Yes, almost universally that's it. Israel's past election, how interesting. Okay, I'm obviously going to take the side that it is Israel's rejection of Christ, aren't I? So, uh, let's go see. And this is Paul. I tell the truth, the Holy Spirit through Paul. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. What's he saying? Very similar to what Moses said. I wish I could be blotted out so you people could be saved. You're not going to be saved. Why not? And he's grieving for the nation of Israel. So what's the subject? What did he tell you he's doing? What's the subject? I'm grieving for who? The nation of Israel. Is it about the nation of Israel so far? (laughs) Somebody said no. (laughs) That's very funny. Hilarious. Yes, it's about the nation of Israel. But you're right. 99% of the churches this country would have answered just like that. No, it's not. What do they say it's about? They say it's about me. They're like a teenage boy. Okay, let's keep going. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. In other words, he's saying Israel got this stuff from God. They were adopted. They got glory. That's the Shekinah glory. They saw God on the throne and they rejected Him then. The covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom all the fathers are from, whom according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. I'm not lying. Christ is the eternally blessed God. And He came to who? Israel. And Paul grieves for them. Why does he grieve for them? Because they rejected Christ. Does that make sense? That is the stated context of Romans 9. Let's keep going. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. 
But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, those are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil, that's the purpose of God, according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It is as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now I'm going to... Move over here to 921. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? Now, what does he mean by Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated and one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? I'll tell you that 90% of people who read that get it wrong. Now, we're going to go back and read Romans 9.14. After he said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, he asked this question. What shall we say then? Is there evil with God? Is there evil with God because he loved Jacob and hated Esau? What's he say? No. Certainly not. Is God evil? If you ever think God is evil, you're up against 914 of Romans. Certainly not. If you ever say to yourself, God is treating me bad, he's done something wrong to me, I'm having a bad time and it's God's fault, you are saying what? God is evil. God hates me. Paul says, no. There is no unrighteousness in God. None. So where's the unrighteousness then, if it's not in God? I'll get everybody a mirror. That'll be a good place to start. Okay? Now let me me read this so that I emphasize. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Is that how you read it? Because that's anthropomorphizing. That is putting your destructive thinking, my destructive thinking, onto God. And that's why he asks, what shall we say then to Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated? What should we say? Should we say that God is evil? Because he hates somebody? No. That would be stupid. He doesn't write that. I'm just kind of adding that in. Is there evil in God? No. Whatever you, whenever you may be inclined to consider otherwise, go back to Romans 9.14. I got a wonderful letter from Rand in Illinois where somebody brought up uh, all kinds of verses to show him that God is evil. And they are wrong. We'll go over it in the weeks to come um, so that Rand can go back to them and say, here, listen to this 
person and see what he says about this. You ever have a position where God is evil, you are horribly mistaken. Now, let's ask the obvious question. Is verse 13, let me read that, as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Is that related to verse 14? Absolutely it is. What shall we say then? Is there evil with God? Certainly not. So here's the order of this. The order is the older shall serve the younger. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Is God evil? No. That's the order of those passages. So understand that order. That'll help you. What's Paul? What's the Holy Spirit through Paul trying to do here? Trying to prove something to you. It's almost like geometry. Here's the given. Given is, the older shall serve the younger. Second given is, Jacob I've loved. Third given is, Esau I've hated. What's the conclusion? Did you conclude God is evil? You're wrong. So what is being said? What is being proved by that? See, the Holy Spirit through Paul is building a case, is proving something. Again, what's being proven? What case is being made? Obviously, Paul knows that as soon as he says, the older shall serve the younger, and Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, he knows that everybody that he's talking to, almost everybody, I know it's the case because I've done it, as soon as I put those two up on the board, what's the conclusion that almost everybody has? God is evil. Why is he evil? Because he hates somebody, they think. They think that that means that God hates somebody. And they hated Esau. Poor Esau. It doesn't mean that. It's never meant that. But that's the conclusion we have. So what does it mean? What's the case? Paul is a Pharisee. He knows what it means. Paul is, if you want to think of him this way, he's an Old Testament genius of whom no one has probably lived that is at his peer. Make the case for Nicodemus and then eventually the disciples. But Paul was an extraordinary student of Scripture. He knows what it means. He also knows that no one else that he's writing to knows what it means. And if I went around with a, with a test and I got a dollar for everyone who got the question wrong, I would be driving a limousine in no time. Yes, sir. Yes, he did. He had, he, he was like Moses. He had access to Christ himself. And obviously Paul anticipates that his readers are going to leap to an incorrect, correct conclusion. Just like some of you have. He's, so he has to tell them. It is not that God is evil. Get that out of your head. If you think, when you read, Esau I have hated, if you think that God is an evil, hateful God, and that uh, Esau didn't deserve to be hated, and by the way, he doesn't hate Esau. I'm going to make that plain here pretty quick. It has nothing to do with Esau. What is the subject? The nation of Israel is the subject. And Paul anticipates that some of his uh, readers, if not all of them, are going to leap to an incorrect conclusion, a conclusion that is so horribly wrong, so much so, that Paul immediately destroys it so there can be no doubt. Is God evil? No. 
So, we now know, is God evil? We know that that is not, is not the meaning of verses 12 and 13. So, what do we do next? That's right. Do we, we, we gotta do what we always do, Pinky. We go and we collect all the places in Scripture that explain Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Because that's what this is. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And, and as you should expect by now, that's going to be a huge pile to sort through. And obviously, right off the bat, we'll have to read Malachi 1, 2 uh, through 3, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, since this is what Paul has quoted here at Romans 9, 13. And then we've got to do Genesis 25, 23. I don't have time to put these on the board. I'll do it next week, because that's quoted at uh, Romans 9.12. And, of course, naturally, what do we have to do after that? That's right. We have to go to Obadiah, the vision of Obadiah. That's the judgment on the nation of Edom. Who is the nation of Edom? Esau. Who is the nation of Israel? Jacob. So I have Israel and I have Edom. Am I talking about Jacob and Esau as individuals? Or am I talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom? Edom uh, is the descendants of Esau. Genesis 25:30, Genesis 36:1, And eventually we have to discuss Hebrews 12:16. And the list so far is Malachi 1, 2 through 3, Genesis 25, 23, Genesis 25, 30, Genesis 36, 1, Obadiah, Hebrews 12, 16. For those of you who are following along by internet. And all of that, that just gets me to understanding two verses in Romans 9, 9, 12 and 9, 13. And that's only the start because I got to go to Genesis 29, 30 through 31, Deuteronomy 21, 15, Luke 14, 16. Yes. What's that? Yes, uh, what Mike's trying to say, I hope, if I get him right, is that if you begin to study Ada Ruth Habershon, not only do I have a national issue with Jacob and Esau, but I have a typological issue where one is the new and the other is the old, and that is talking about natures or flesh. In other words, he says, I'm going to get rid of Esau and I am going to focus on the new heart, if you will, or the new creature. One is the old flesh, the other is the newborn, if you want to look at it that way. And you're absolutely correct. That is part of Jacob and Esau. So whether or not that's here too, we'll have to deal with that. Was that what I, is that what you were thinking? Okay, good. Got one right. Okay, as soon as I'm done with all that list of uh, stuff that I just gave you, verses, i got to go to Pharaoh, right? Because he's number two. As soon as I solve what he means by I've loved Jacob, I've hated Esau, is he talking about each individual's natures? 
Um, or is he talking about the nations of Israel and Edom? In the context, remember, is the nation of Israel that Paul is weeping over because they rejected the Messiah that is Christ. Then I've got to figure out the Pharaoh. Why do I have to figure out the poor Pharaoh? Isn't he poor? Terrible what happened to the Pharaoh. He got his heart hardened, right? God hardened his heart and then killed him. God is what? No, no, don't do it. Certainly not. God is good always. God is loving. He's just. Then I have the potter and the clay. Some for honor, some for dishonor. What does that mean? Is that about individual salvation? Or is that about nations? And I'm fully aware how exhausting this can be. I'm asked over and over again, why did God make his Bible so complicated? No one can understand it. It is so hard. I can't do it. Wah, 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 wah. I get it all the time. And as as an aside, everyone who has spent significant time unrivaling the mysteries of the Bible or attempting to solve the mysteries of the Bible ends up noticing that there's a great similarity to the mysteries in the physical reality. Everyone does that. As soon as you start unraveling the Bible, then all of a sudden you find out, wait a minute, not only do I have the same pattern of intricacy, if you will, interconnectability here in the Bible, and all this mysterious stuff in the Bible, I have the same exact system, if you want to think of it that way, in the physical reality around me, in a flower, George Washington Carver, in a peanut. The conclusion becomes the author of whoever wrote the Bible is obviously the creator of the physical universe. There's no question about that. It doesn't take very long for you to figure that out. This tremendous uh, interconnectivity, as I said, this method are the same. His design mirrors his words and the reverse. It's called fine-tuning, by the way, in physics. The physicists have understood something. There's this amazing fine-tuning all around us. If any part is missing, everything collapses. I have to have what I have for there to be something. The entire universe is filled, fine-tuned, and it has to be the way it is. Otherwise, there is no something. What is there no something? What is the something? There's no life. If I don't have this perfect fine-tuning, there's no life. I've got to have the right amount of hydrogen. I've got to have the right amount of helium. I've got to have the right amount of nitrogen. I've got to have the right amount of heat. If I move the sun, if I move the earth, everything's perfectly. It's like what? It's like a, he's, they call him a watchmaker. It's so perfect. Watchmakers should be so lucky. But the entire universe, not just our solar system, not just our galaxy, the whole universe is finely tuned for life to exist only here on, on earth. That bugs people, by the way, when I say that. Any one thing out of order or in a, or a different value and life doesn't occur. Life cannot be. Thousands and thousands and thousands, actually millions and millions and millions, probably billions and billions and billions of perfectly fine-tuned events and conditions in a perfect order, in a perfect way. If not, there is no life. Not even an insect. It's not even an amoeba. More of that on the weeks to come. That's the fine-tuning. Well, that fine-tuning that's in the physical creation is in your Bible. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so complicated.
He wanted to make sure you could spot the fine-tuning. Would you take the time to notice it? Because you're going to stand in front of him and say, I am really good at video games. How's that going to go? I was listening to somebody say this the other day. I just I, I cheered on the radio. He said, get away from Facebook and learn to do something. And I went, yeah. But I really want you to learn to think something. You're good at Facebook. Is as bad a thing that you can't. I can't think of something worse to say about you than that. But anyway, more of that fine tuning in weeks to come. The Bible and the universe both have that characteristic. The atheist, as you know, has a response. He knows that the universe is fine tuned. They all know it. They go, My goodness, if anything is out of order here just a little bit, we have huge problems. Life is destroyed. So it's, it's designed for life and perfectly tuned for life. And so he can't come up with a reason that that would happen in this universe, much less in this one spot. My goodness, they call that horrible. We cannot have only life here. We can't. It's horrible. And so he proposes billions and billions and billions of universes. That's how they do it. It's called the multiverse position. It's, it's absurd, but we'll get to it in a few weeks. Anyway, the point is the Bible is the same. Astonishingly fine-tuned, ridiculously interconnected and interdependent, and uh, and it is complex. So we have to shovel through it, and and what uh, um, Catherine calls it, we have to eat the elephant. And and she reminds me, how do you eat elephants? Of course, you you eat with a spoon. Takes a while. You're going to be at it sometime. But once you see what's here... You'll get it done. And before we head off into the forest studying Jacob and Esau, I need to interject something for those who are likely to wander off alone. That won't stay with the group. That pretty much is all of Cliffside. Yes, I know the time. I'm watching it. I know I'm in trouble. In order to understand Jacob, Esau, and they have a meeting, and Esau says, give me some of the red. And we think that it's stew, and we'll make the case that it might be stew. Give me some of the red. And Jacob says, I'll, I'll give you the red. And by the way, Edom means red. This is a big problem because we know now that Esau is red-headed. Run for your lives. <laughs> but one thing you have to know, that Jacob and Esau... And this birthright is in the context of the beheading of Nimrod. Do you know that? When they're sitting down talking about this birthright and they're exchanging this, this they have, they're coming to an agreement, which makes no sense, by the way. All of that is because Jewish historical tradition says that Nimrod has just cut the head off. He just beheaded Nimrod and he's running for his life. What he was fleeing was the Nimrod security forces. And he did that. He runs into his brother's tent, says, I need some food. I'm about to die. And Jacob says to him, hey, we got a, what about your birthright? 
doesn't seem to make any sense, but it makes perfectly sense, good sense. And that's the accepted context of Genesis 25, 29 through 33. It occurs to me that we might not get there today. So I wanted to get that done. Genesis 29. Let's look at this. Let's try to solve this hated and loved thing. So we go other places in the Bible where the same form is. Go find all the hated and all the loves, if you will, or all the loves and the hated. We'll go to Genesis 29, 30 through 31. I'll read it. Then Jacob. Oh, that's handy because we can. Here it is with Jacob again. Then Jacob also went to Rachel and he also. I'm sorry. Jacob also went into Rachel. And he also loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, some of your Bibles will say a little differently than that, but we'll just stick with that. He also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, now some of your Bibles will say what? Hated. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked upon my affliction. What's her affliction? Jacob didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. Rachel was the favorite. Now, therefore, my husband will love me because I have a son. So what's she saying? I was behind Rachel. Now I'm catching up. I got Reuben. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has also therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So that is the context. But again, this love hated. Obviously, for those who have the King James, the Hebrew word is translated hated. Same as in Romans. Same word. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Is it? Rachel, I have loved. Leah, I have hated. Did Jacob hate Leah? That's the question. What's the context? What's the subject here? Is it the individuals, Jacob and Esau, that he is talking about? Or is it the nations, Israel and Edom? If it is Israel and Edom in Malachi, Malachi 1, 1 through 3, where he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have not loved as much. What's he saying there? Is he talking about the individuals or the nation? And if it is Israel and Edom in Malachi, and if it is unloved and loved, or loved not as much, or loved less, or slightly less, then it is the same in Romans. Because the verse is the same verse, and the words are the same words. 29.30 of Genesis, 30-31, Genesis 29.30-31, word is the same. It's translated hated in Malachi in the Old King James, translated hated in the Old King James here in Genesis. But is that the context? The context is Rachel is loved more than Leah, or Leah is loved less. Or, if you wish, Leah is hated. So is Jacob a hateful man? Does he hate Leah? Does that make sense? How many children he got with her? Ends up with a lot. 
Leah's starting to win big time here. Does he love Rachel more than Leah? Or does he love Rachel and hate Leah? Does God love Jacob and hate Esau? Or does he love Jacob more? As the context in Genesis 29, the words are the same, is that there is a level here. The Hebrew word translated hatred, to sum it up, can be loved less, it can be slighted, it can be put in second place. Remember the order, right? The younger or the older will serve the younger. There's an order there. There's a first place and a second place. If I have somebody in first place and somebody in second place, do I automatically hate the one in second place? Not in our culture. Everybody gets a trophy in this culture. We don't even get different color ribbons. And some say to me about the old King James, and, and I understand this. As you know, I value the old King James. I think it is the most correct, but you have to know how to read it. And so, therefore, it causes lots of problems. People say to me that if the old King James is not the only translation of the ancient Hebrew and the Greek that is acceptable, then God has failed. Because uh, he, if he can't preserve his word, with, and they believe the old King James is God preserving his word. If he can't preserve his word, he can't preserve me. That's a difficult position because the Old King James is the English translation. So you you want him to preserve it in English. And that's the only one you're going to accept. That's a tough spot to be in. And you have to have it to your satisfaction. That's another tough spot. Again, the King James, let me say it again, of all the translations, it is the most correct. There's no question about it. In my view, the New King James, however, which I'm reading to you, has lots of problems. Got to know that. When when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, that's what the New King James says. I think that's incorrect. I think it is when the Lord saw that Leah was in second place or loved less or slighted. I do not think that it is unloved. Again, I submit the children. I think that Jacob is a loving man. I'll make that case. I know a lot of people disagree with me. The context is clearly in Genesis 29. It is clearly the level of Jacob's affection, the competition, if you will, between Leah and Rachel. It is not that he hated one of them. I don't think you can defend that position. I submit unloved doesn't reflect the competition element either. Because if she was unloved, there is no competition. And hated does not reflect the competition. Love less, or second place, if you will, best fulfills the meaning of the passage. Now, we can try Deuteronomy 21.15. Because it gets more complicated. As you would expect, Right? Because it's fine-tuned. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her 
who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. So who gets the firstborn? He cannot give firstborn status to Rachel's son because she's not first. He's got to give firstborn status to the second place wife, if you will. Reuben, that's what it says. And again, we have, is he hating the second wife and loving the first, if you will? Is it love hated, love unloved, love loved less? First place, second place. Which is it? Put in first place, put in second place. It fits all the context. Which then means that is what Romans 9, 12, and 13 is about. I have put the nation of Israel in first place, and I am putting the nation of Edom in second place. I love the nation of Israel. I love the nation of Edom less. Why does he love the nation? Does Israel deserve to be loved more? He says no. What does loved mean, by the way, in the context? Does it mean, in the, first, let's get this out of the way. Is Romans 9, 12, 13, 14, about individual salvation? No. It's about the nations. The nation of Israel I have put in first place. The nation of Edom I have put in second place. Again, not individual salvation, but national responsibility. I have given more responsibility to the nation of Israel. Why did he do it? What was their responsibility? They were chosen to have a national responsibility. They were supposed to be a nation of priests. And their job was to take the truth of the goodness of God and his salvation to the Gentiles. Did they do that? No. Israel was to love the Gentiles to be a beacon, a light of truth. Now. Let me, i got a little bit of time. Terry will say I don't, but I think I do. So we're going to deal with the mystery of Esau and Jacob. This is individuals. Really fast. Genesis, uh, where am I? 25, 29. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field where he had just beheaded Nimrod. And he was weary because he was running from Nimrod's forces. They're going to kill him. And he knew it. By the way, the tradition is is that he cut off Nimrod's head, stalked him. And the reason he stalked him is because Nimrod had something he wanted. Nimrod had these garments. And he wanted those garments. Evidence is he got them. He saw did. Nimrod, it'll say, used those garments to rule his kingdom. So what were those garments? Pretty cool stuff, whatever they were. Anyway, Esau came in from the field and he was wearied and and tired from running for his life. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me some of that red. Stew is not in the text. For I am tired. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. He had red hair. It is a terrible physical deformity, red hair, as we all know. Run for your lives. But anyway, Jacob said, 
sell me your birthright as of this day. Why is he doing that? And Esau said, look, I am about to die. I'm being hunted by the mighty men of Nimrod. It doesn't look good. By the way, kill two of them. That's the tradition. Esau was a very potent guy. And he obviously survives this. So how did he do it? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. Jacob believed that Esau was about to be killed. And Esau believed it also that he was about to be killed. So why are they bothering? Why did Jacob bother with this? Does he need the birthright? No, God has already told him he's going to get it. He told him that Israel, if you will, the nation of Israel will come through Jacob, and the nation that comes through Edom will serve the nation that comes through Jacob. So why do I even need the birthright? What was Jacob thinking? Why is this important to Jacob? Why did Esau, what was he thinking? Both of the two guys sitting there thought that Esau was going to be dead here in 15 minutes. And he wanted to eat because he was tired. And he knew he had what coming? He's got a fight coming. Both of those men knew that Jacob, they both knew the older serves the younger. They both knew that happened. They understood it. Both knew that Jacob was chosen by God for something. I'm not sure they knew what the something was. In fact, I'll make the case they didn't have any idea what the something was. Why even do this birthright thing? I'm about to be killed. My brother's over there going here. I'll sell you this for a birthright you don't have anyway. And you, you know, what's the point? But God says Esau despised it. Now that's interesting. Why did Esau despise it? Next week, we'll try to solve all of that. Let's get out of here. Musicians, come forward. Will the musicians please come forward? Why?